0: Before we get started, I wanna tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E. T-S. There's something about
1: seeing when you're planting a field or harvesting a field that getting done over time and you feel like you're really accomplishing something. And then the next part of it is thinking about, oh, well, the world's Creation is happening in front of my eyes, you know, like you put a seed in the ground and at the end of the year you have something totally different and getting to shepherd life that way is, it's a pretty incredible experience, I think.
0: My guest today is Garrett McClintock. Garrett is the COO of AcreTrader. AcreTrader is a hot new startup out of Fayetteville, Arkansas that recently finished a Series A $12 million funding round. AcreTrader matches investors with farmland that provides investors with a return on their capital while also giving farmers the land they need to grow their operation. Did you know in 1935 there were 7 million farms in operation and now there are only 2 million? What's changed and why? I had a great time talking with my longtime friend Garrett. Garrett is a fifth generation farmer and I wanted to have him on this show where we discuss the following. The future of farming, the growing demand, the decreasing amount of acreage, and the decreasing number of farmers. What's in the DNA of a farmer? What's the fulfillment they feel with the work they do? The nonlinear path his own career has taken, the barriers he and his team break down on behalf of the farmer, and more. Please enjoy this week's conversation with Garrett McClintock. Murtis, Garrett, for those that Murtis is Garrett's nickname, we've known each other a long time, but not sure what we'll call today, (laughs) but great to see you, buddy. Thanks for coming on this afternoon. Yeah, likewise, Sam. It's been cool to see you uh, grow this
1: thing. I'm loving some of the interviews. I was listening to a couple last night. Kat Gordon, man, that was an awesome conversation.
0: Thank you. She's, you know, since that conversation, she... Shut down a few of those stores, did a construction project on our Broad Avenue store, you know, definitely a strong community feel and teaching classes. And she's teaching even vocation and vision classes and things like that. So it's been, you know, when you're an owner, you can relate to the ups and the downs, but to hear the things that she had the courage to kind of talk about and then see how that has taken effect into this year. And then you can see kind of the manifestation of that. It's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. That's cool, man. Glad you liked hers. I did too. Man, the first question I, I was just kind of thinking through, when you think about the farmer, when you think about being fifth generation in farming, when you think about 70% of the workforce in 1840 was farming and now what's that statistic? Oh, Geez, man. I mean,
1: it's tiny. It's gotta be less than five. I can't say that I know it off of hand.
0: So when you think about the farmer and you think about being five generations in, what are the struggles of the farmer? What's their experience week in, week out that you felt growing up and you see in the marketplace right now?
1: Yeah, man, that is such a good question. So (sighs) farmers have a complicated job, Sam. They, They just do a lot of things. They are business people, they're mechanics, they are agronomists, meaning like they they have to judge plant health, they have just a lot on their plate day to day. And what's really impressive too is that they're doing all these things while, and and they may do them perfectly, but that's only like 20% of their outcome. The weather and the commodity markets have such an oversized amount of effect on their year to year revenues that you know it just takes a conservative approach in terms of business expansion and and cash management and and just honestly like constitution to be able to like you know no pun intended weather all of the the things that may come along in a given year
0: what is it about the attraction to it to where people still want to do it still want to be in that struggle even if the numbers have declined what is it that's so strong about that desire that makes people still wanna still wanna work so hard, wear so many hats, and still at the end of the day, regardless of how well they execute on their end, that's only 20% of the overall outcomes. Oh man, I mean, I can't answer for
1: everyone, but I think there's there's a it's partially it's a lifestyle. I mean, you get to be out outside every day, you get to see your progress and see the world's progress uh, and how it works on, on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you know, there's something about seeing, uh, when you're planting a field or harvesting a field that getting done over time and you feel like you're really accomplishing something. And then the, the next part of it is thinking about, Oh, well the world's, uh, creation is happening in front of my eyes. You know, like you, you put a seed in the ground and at the end of the year you have something totally different and getting to shepherd life that way is, it's a pretty incredible experience. I think, you know, I don't have as many years of experience in that as, as many do, but it's a, it was a really cool way to grow up. And I, I, I really enjoyed it while I was, while I was directly farming.
0: Yeah. So, Let's just take a, a summer when you were at home. What did Monday through Sunday look like from a wearing a hat standpoint? From doing the business side, doing the operational side, being a mechanic. What is that lifestyle like that you've seen in yourself, your own family, or others? Yeah. Uh, so
1: in the summer, let's be clear. I was a I was a a work hand. I was not a farmer. Uh, yeah. I got I got to do the the grunt work, which was you know that was about where my skill level was, but summer's irrigation system or, uh, irrigation time in the South. And so you're dealing with, uh, you know, putting out poly pipe, which is like a, it's like a rubber piping that, uh, lays flat and you lay it out across your field. And then, uh, it expands and you know, you punch holes in it and it basically sends water down the rows between your crops. So you're doing that kind of stuff. You're monitoring how much water is out there. Uh, I spent a full summer digging out uh, ditches with a backhoe, you know, just like learning, okay, how does this work? And I mean, it's like a video game, but you're just doing it over and over and you got to make sure the grade is correct on your, on your ditches so that the water drains and it doesn't back up fields. You do all kinds of stuff like look at uh, spraying weeds, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a day-to-day battle trying to stay ahead of the, Water problems, the weed problems, and giving your crop the most potential to perform well.
0: Yeah. So running machinery, spraying weeds, I mean, is that the full day or was there stuff after that? Man, running machinery and spraying weeds and grading roads, I mean, it's a lot of
1: ongoing maintenance. I mean, it's kind of like your old business, you know, it's something where it has to be done over and over. And then you have to, make sure it's taken care of again when those things come back. But they're long days. I mean, you wake up and you get, get to work at seven and you leave at seven or later a lot of
0: times. And are you doing that six, seven days a week? Yep. Pretty much every day. I was reading some online. I mean, this is not reflective of people that have larger amounts of land or you know what that may be, but they were just talking about one year they may make few hundred grand and then next year they may lose a few hundred grand. Is that
1: true? Dude, depending on size of your operation, that could be millions. I mean, it just really depends. The way that I've heard a lot of farmers talk about it is that you're on a five-year cycle generally. Now, this is an average, but in a couple of the years, you may lose money. In a couple of years, you may break even. And one or two of those years is going to make up the difference. So, you'll do really, really well in those one or two years and that'll Average you at a profitable business, and you've got to have
0: the capital with to withstand that the ups and downs of that. So, but then are you back to break even after that year five? Well, hopefully you're you're ahead a
1: little bit, but uh, in theory, how it should work out is after year five, you have enough. Uh, you've got more equity in your land, you've got more equity in your equipment, and you should have cash more cash after the. The end of that period, it works out roughly. The number that I've heard as a rule of thumb is about fifty dollars an acre on average, and that's excluding, you know, paying yourself rent basically.
0: Yeah, and the people that own what's a good size farm? Five thousand acres? Yeah, I would say in the Mississippi
1: Delta, five thousand acres is roughly what we look at to to be able to support a family, and so there there. a good number of those operations there's some that are less and some that are more uh you know when when it's less sometimes people have other jobs and they'll farm less and supplement their income elsewhere sometimes you know people's cost structure is different so they may they may just need less to live and you know frequently it's less early in your career and you have to keep building that and there are some that are hundreds of thousands of acres those people are obviously much more rare but you know the size of farmer is generally pretty widespread
0: so and then in the midwest what's an average size for a farm there so midwest is a good deal smaller you're looking at uh, a couple thousand acres will support
1: a family Um, the reason is in the midwest your cost structure is different so yields are higher which just basically means you can make more revenue on a per acre basis and i keep referring to per acre Just so you know, that's how most farmers think about profitability on their own land is, you know, if I take this and multiply it times, however many acres I have, that's how I end up understanding my business as a whole. Yeah. So revenues are higher. And the other thing is they don't irrigate quite as much. It was strange. The first time I went into the Midwest and you look around and you don't see any irrigation and in the South, in the Delta, that's like, that's all you see. But the jet stream basically blows the weather pattern perfectly over the Midwest where the prairies used to be. And it's ideal growing conditions for the main crops in the U.S., which are corn and soybeans. So, And they need less water. Yep. Well, they need the same amount of water, but it's just provided naturally. Through rainfall. That's exactly right. They just don't have the droughts. Yeah. I mean, you know. You, you can always have a drought, but generally there is more rainfall at the right times in the Midwest than there is in the South. In the, in the Delta is primarily what I'm talking about.
0: So why was cotton so common in the South? Yeah, that, man, that's a good
1: question. So cotton in the South is grown because there's the appropriate amount of what are called growing degree days. And basically that means it's hotter, longer in the South than it is in the Midwest and cotton takes a certain amount of days to grow. And so that maturity is available in the South where it's not in the Midwest.
0: Is cotton more expensive than corn or soybeans? Well, it's a, I mean, to grow, or do you mean in terms of revenues? Revenues. So cotton, well,
1: it's a year to year thing. Um, Most crops are doing well right now. Cotton is roughly the same as corn. Soybeans is a lower revenue crop. Uh, Rice is generally a pretty high revenue crop. Grain sorghum is something else that's grown in the in the delta and some in in places like Texas and Oklahoma. That's a lower uh, revenue crop as well. And and just for your reference, that's a uh, that's a feed. So it it like corn. Much of grain sorghum goes to feeding uh, livestock.
0: Gotcha. So I guess overall, if we think about our world today, and if we think about the things that you know, drive our activity and economies on a daily basis, you have a shrinking amount of farmland, uh, I suppose. I mean, that's just a gut thought. That's correct. And you have a shrinking number of people that own farms. And then you have these larger investment groups, not like AcreTrader, but others that are consuming and buying up the farmland and holding it. So then if you have a decrease in available land and a decrease of number of people doing it, then you're going to have a tightened amount of supply and then therefore prices will go up and so the people that are doing it that are engaged that are bought in they've weathered the storm they've made it they've made it through those five-year cycles but then the problem is maybe is generations after don't want to continue to do that so overall and then you add which I don't know how you feel about this, but if you, I I just read some stuff on global warming and the swings, weather patterns and things like that. If you add all that, it's just no secret that commodity prices will continue to increase. And we've also seen what happens when we are dependent on importing various types of commodities or goods. And so it's going to be in demand. It's always going to be in demand. And that's why the space is so attractive from an investment standpoint right now. And is that why y'all are able, which we hadn't really gotten there yet, to be a valuable relationship to the farmers that you work with? Because you're able to use your expertise, your technology, and your skill sets to help them try to create the most amount of success possible with their farms.
1: Yeah. So you nailed... Uh, the thesis, and I'll, I'll try to take the thesis, and then I'll I'll try to take how acre trader plays into all of this. So the thesis is a supply and demand dynamic. As you said, we lo- we're losing a ton of farmland every single year, and the number of farmland matters less than the very productive farmland, which we are losing. I mean, for instance, the area outside of Chicago is a very productive area. As that city continues to expand. It's going to eat up more farm acres because people want to live there at the same time you have a growing demand for food as the world gets more middle class type eating habits you're going to want more protein which means more animals which means more corn and soybeans to feed those animals so you have less farmland more demand for the crops grown on those acres and it drives up the uh, the value of that underlying land. So Acre trader, how do we play into that? How do we help the farmers? You know, I don't pretend that I know how to be the best farmer in the world. I think we have a bunch of fantastic farming partners. We wanna be able to be a resource for them when we can, but what we're more interested in is being that financial guy that they have in their back pocket. So if they have a farm that comes up and maybe they just bought a farm the previous year, or maybe they just uh, bought out their dad from a property. You know, they may just not have the cash right now, but they still wanna grow on those acres to help grow their revenues, grow their business. They can call us, we can buy the farm and then lease it back to them. Honestly, it's hard to own every single acre you farm. Most farmers don't. And so if you can have someone like acre Trader that you know you can call and we're always buying farms. Right now we're buying one a week. That's a really large number uh, globally for a number of farms anyone's buying. We're always buying and we can be that partner when the time is right and they find a great deal and they can continue to expand their operation.
0: Do they ever get equity in that land or do y'all always hold the equity in the land? They just get the cash flow off the management and the yields of that land. Yeah, so think about it like this we lease the land to them, they can absolutely come on and
1: co-invest with our other investors to own a portion of that land. And that happens, that's happened several times and I'd like to see it happen more and more frequently.
0: But at the same time, you know, they want to be able to spread their dollars elsewhere and they can do that as well. So it's a way for them to generate free cash flow without having to tie up their balance sheet or to over leverage themselves on the land itself. Yeah, that's exactly right.
1: I mean, most of these rental relationships are just like if you rented a storefront, you know, you're going to go out and make a lease and then you're going to go have a business within that storefront. We're just doing the same thing except for farmland.
0: Going back a little bit, we'll come back to y'all's work now. But, you know, you were out of farming from what I read and what I know. But you were out (laughs) of farming for a few years and then you, you were in a different kind of farming operation, which sounds similar to what you're doing now, except it was still large for a private family, but pales in comparison to the size you're at now. Did you ever think that you were going to get back into farming? Did you want to get back in farming? What was it like to be in finance and and not be in farming directly? What was that like for you personally?
1: Personally, I always had a
0: calling
1: back to farming. I, I always found it fascinating. I thought there were lots of opportunities here. And I I should be, let's, let's talk about, about it more broadly. I'm not a farmer. We, we don't farm here. We're involved in the farming industry, the agriculture industry. And uh, I would say we're involved at the intersection of agriculture, technology, and finance. And that's where I try to develop my skill sets. Even when I was at my last job, I I find that intersection absolutely fascinating because there's so much opportunity there. Farming has developed in some ways very rapidly using some really advanced technologies. And in other ways, it it's behind still. And one of those areas is actually investment in agriculture. And that makes it a really compelling opportunity
0: for me and for a lot of people here. So you, you've always been interested in finance, technology, and agriculture, but you wanted to get back in the f- space of farming to some degree in whatever way possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you knew that the entire time?
1: Yeah, I think I did. I didn't know how it was going to work out. And I, I, Sam, you and I have had this conversation before. It's hard to have a non-PATH path. I think you and I, and a lot of other people, you know, we see our friends who may be doctors or lawyers and it's enviable to know your direction and to know the next step and what that looks like and what you have to do to get there. I think when you're in the position like we are, you kind of have to build your skill sets, know your interests, and then hopefully those opportunities will come and present themselves where you can take advantage of those things yeah and you kind of just have to believe in the process until it
0: happens, and so you said calling you felt in your heart, I guess, is from what you're saying that this was a space that you would be in, and I had one earlier today, so uh, <laughs> you know there's where you're confused, you're frustrated, you see, but you know what kind of makes you tick, and you just kept your head down. Is that what you're saying?
1: yeah, I mean, look, man, I don't want to idealize it. There was a lot of uh questioning fear. Wondering how this was all going to play out. And it hasn't played out fully, you know, but still we're both
0: 33, 34. (laughs) That's right.
1: But it feels a lot more like there's a real direction here and and real opportunities when before you just kind of had to trust that if you do the right things enough, that those the right opportunity will present itself and you have to be as prepared as possible when that does come. I think I heard someone or read somewhere,
0: this idea of luck surface area. Have you heard that? To some vague degree, but yeah, act like no. So I can hear (laughs) it from you and hear it and I can understand it. Sure. So luck surface area, I read that essentially
1: luck is just coming by you at all kinds of different times and you want to expand the surface area on which that luck can strike. So if I'm sitting here and I'm two feet wide, how can I make myself 12 feet wide? I think that is a really fantastic way to think about there are elements in the world I cannot control, but I'm gonna do everything I can for what I can control. And hopefully I'll be able to capture some more of those elements that I can't.
0: Yeah, really good and encouraging. I mean, normally this part of the conversation, it's unique because we've grown up together and we've known each other for a long time and we've stayed friends even through our twenties and thirties. But I mean, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter whoever I've interviewed. When I usually get to this point, there's usually like a a parent or a coach. Is that true with you that where you kind of had that voice to just keep staying in the game, you know, when you can't see the past, so to speak? Yeah, I think
1: so, man. I mean, my parents were really at our, a very big influence on me. They are incredibly intelligent, intellectually curious, probably more importantly, they're incredibly hardworking and they're just good people. And, you know, I remember my first year out of college, I was struck at how just doing the right thing and reputation is so important in business. And it seems like, you know, I guess when I got out, it struck me because I was like, oh, that sounds kind of old fashioned, but like, it makes sense. If you do, if you have uh, consistently perform and consistently do the right things, people will notice and you develop trust in a community. And I think that's one of the things they, they taught me is like, do the right things and over time that's going to pay off. And, you know, they were definitely there and encouraged me during those times when I was wondering, what what the hell am I doing? Uh, They are a massive influence on me.
0: Going back a little bit, and we're going to come back there. The farmers that do well, what do they figure out? That's a good question, too. Well, that's my job. (laughs) that's that's all i got questions are all i got at this point in my life so thank you yeah man uh i think the things
1: that they do well are manage cash well and manage their balance sheet well you know if if we assume that there's that five-year period and again it may not play out in exactly five years but for the sake of argument it does then they have to know that during that five-year period You're going to be drawing down on the amount of cash you have. And so they structure their businesses to be capital efficient as possible. And then when they have the money, when that big year comes, they figure out how to spend it well. And I think the other thing that I, I mean, this is my limited experience, right? But the other thing that I've seen good farmers do is find good partners outside of their own operation. It it does seem like there are people... And it's kind of like life, you know, like there's always someone who gives you that opportunity, who makes an introduction or says, I believe in you. And I'd, I'd like to take a chance on you. And that may be money. It may be, you know, a recommendation. It may be any number of things, but they have those people who are willing to speak up for them and who make what they do possible.
0: And so what you're saying is those people that, I mean, grind it out, You're having to keep your costs down. You're having to work really hard. You're having to be disciplined on those big years. So probably not always buying that brand new, you know, lariat or always buying six-figure ski boat, whatever it is, or second or third vacation house. Like you're just trying to watch your leverage and you're playing the long game, but you're just, you're locked in on what you're doing. But it sounds that you really probably can't, You can't be successful over a long period of time if you're really not interested or passionate about it because you're having to work really hard. You're having to wear hats and take on roles that probably with other types of work, you could, you know, delegate higher, not have to be as lean. And you're having to be very disciplined uh, when you get those big windfalls. And you're saying the people that can do it without over leveraging themselves are the people that are just able to grind it out that way year after year. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'd say the other thing is execution is table six. You have to be able to get the right things done at the right time. And, you know, I mean, look, this is ultimately farming. It has unique aspects to it, uh, characteristics, but ultimately farming is just another business. and, And I think that it has a lot of the same qualities that a lot of businesses do. Execution is always table
0: six. And what's the pride or what's the feeling that somebody feels? Is there something intrinsic to them where they feel they're a part of, you know, providing all the produce or, or food for the people in our country or elsewhere, uh, giving them what they need on a daily basis? Yeah, I think there definitely is pride. I think there's pride not only
1: in the uh, product that they create, but in keeping this lifestyle alive this this thing that people have been doing ever since they showed up you know Europeans showed up on american shores we've been producing crops from american soil and i think that's something that people have real pride that they are you know still part of there's a uh there are these things called century farms which means the farm has been in your family for 100 years and people have real pride about that. And that happens, uh, you know, pretty, pretty regularly in farming. It's about keeping the tradition alive. And that I think that is a pride more than, uh, than you know, obviously it's, it's a great thing to be able to produce uh, record yields on bushels of corn or soybeans, but I think really continuing the legacy is what makes people love the occupation.
0: And you know, also I guess to what we're saying somewhat, just to not come from farming and to say, hey, I want to be a farmer one day and I'm gonna go borrow, you know, a few million dollars to buy this land and another million or few million dollars to go buy all the equipment and all the chemicals and it's just it's not there's not a new influx of new blood, so to speak, coming into farming. So that just seems common sense, is that true?
1: Dude, it's absolutely true. So we did an estimate one time and guessed that there was, it took about $5 million to start a farm that was big enough to support a family. If you have $5 million, you can retire and just live on the dividends of your investments. It's a hard thing to start a farm. I think that's one of the things I'm really excited about Acre Trader for is we can help provide more opportunities for people who, maybe have a smaller farm now, but want to grow it in a good way. And if we can do that, then hopefully we're creating a new type of ecosystem and financing capability within agriculture. And those type of opportunities are what get me up every day.
0: Because you're removing those barriers that prevent people that are already good at it and already love it. You're breaking down barriers to help those people do more of it.
1: Yeah, man, kind of going back to what we said before, like I'm just expanding their surface area. I may not be able to do every single farm that somebody brings me, but I can do one more every single week. And that provides someone an opportunity. Hey,
0: everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time now more than ever? Traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets Jet Card. It gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. Is there anyone else in the us right now focusing specifically on what y'all focus on there are a few honestly we are the
1: largest we do the most farms and we're the one that uh and in row crops specifically we're the only one do y'all do orchards and things like that we do orchards yeah we uh let's see we have pecan orchards we've looked into all kinds of different things from wine grapes to olive orchards stuff like that but almonds and pecans and apples uh, we've done to date.
0: From a labor standpoint, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you see things evolving over the next, you know, five, 10, 15 years. I mean, every large company is investing in things to try to make themselves in a better position to keep up with demand of whatever it is they're producing or selling. And, you know, there's a lot of unfilled jobs right now, and into the future, there's going to be a lot of unfilled jobs. And then you have large behemoth of organizations that pay, you know, really high or higher hourly rates that can attract uh, manual labor workforce, et cetera. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the labor side of farming and what that looks like into the future, where robotics and you know technology or continue to make things automated and to make things more efficient and to make it less on uh needs for human capital but what does that look like in the industry where like people from the top down are declining and in getting involved with it
1: man uh, multifaceted question so I'll, I'll take the the first thing I'll, I'll talk about here is that rural america that's been the story of r- rural america for the last 50 years or more it has taken less labor to farm the same amount of acres everywhere, which is why you see part of the reason you see a lot of people moving into cities and away from rural areas. There's just not as many jobs. Now, at the same time, what you're asking is can you find labor? That's becoming increasingly a more and more difficult thing to do. Think about the type of person you have to find. So, you have to find someone who likes being outside, likes doing uh, mechanic work but also can um, you know you're you're putting them on a tractor and saying here's this 400,000 dollar piece of equipment or more i want you to go out into that field and i'll see you in 12 or 14 or 16 hours that's a lot of trust to give someone and not to mention when they go out in that field they have the potential to do millions of dollars worth of good or damage so and you know, that's a 12 14 16 hour day on that person yeah. Dude, I'm telling you. And there's, there are other people I know who are like, that's on the light end of hours. I mean, during harvest, sometimes you're 24 hours or more just because your weather windows to get your primary jobs done. So primary jobs being uh, harvest and planting. Those weather windows are very narrow. So you want to get as much done when you can as fast as you can. And so they're really long hours at certain times of year.
0: Are you just saying that it's going to continue to be a problem, but machinery, equipment, it's going to continue to, there's going to be innovation, it's going to continue to be approved, and it's just going to be more and more automated to, to keep up with it, whatever needs to be done. And then the people that are there that enjoy it, that do a great job, they're going to make a good living, but they're going to work really long hours, and it's going to be you know very hard compared to a lot of other jobs in the country, but that's just the trend that's going to keep happening. I don't know if I would suggest that
1: is the only thing that could happen. I do think that we will continue to see more technology enabling fewer people to farm more acres. I also think that it will be difficult to find good labor, but I also think that there, like you said, there will be opportunities for people who do well. And I don't think everybody always has to work those kind of hours. There are just always times when it will have to happen occasionally.
0: Yeah, So I've heard you talk about with y'all's work, you know, the old way of doing things and why it can't be done anymore. And I guess it sounds like it just, I mean, this inflection point that happened for a long time, the barriers to entry were really high and then the capital needs to continue to do it and to sustain ongoing operations and then to want to grow. The math almost just didn't work out in a lot of ways. And then y'all just envisioned This new way to build a platform where you raise capital and you use technology and expertise to partner with these farmers to give them growth, to give them more acreage, to help them do more of what they love. And then for them to also in most cases make more cash flow, but then also to give your investors, you know, a good return on their capital to buy that land. And that's just what y'all envisioned from the start. And that's what y'all launched. I think that's pretty right. The, what I would say
1: is the old way can't be done anymore for almost everything you're doing. Uh, You know, life is progress. I think that what I'm excited about for us is that we bring more money to the table, more opportunities for people. And I think the more investors who are interested in agriculture, who are literally invested in agriculture and emotionally, and the more capital that's available for the the best people who can find it and do well with it, I think that improves almost any industry. And I hope that as more capital comes into agriculture and land investing, that continues to be the case. As you you know, one of the things that we always talk about is the size of the farmland market. So it's a $3 trillion market. I think there are maybe, it's in the, low tens of billions invested in farmland right now, it's incredibly fragmented. It's, uh, you know, it's owned by a lot of different people. I think the average age of the farmland owner, American farmland owner right now is 65. So, you know, that land is going to transfer and, you know, in most cases, it's going to go to, you know, the, the children or grandchildren, the people who own it. And that's a great thing. Some of those people though, you know, maybe there's 14 heirs. It's a really hard to manage 14 owners of anything uh, yeah. unless you're a public company or you know more, a more professional set of folks. And if we can be there to help them have a really good experience, provide transparency and education and liquidity, then that's a great
0: outcome for them. And it's a great outcome for the guy who may be farming their land right now. So let's say you have a farm and it's, Five thousand acres, and that's worth what seven, eight million bucks? Sure, something like that. Okay, so you sell that farm, and you make when you and you'd pay capital gains tax on that, right? Yep. So let's just say, unless you can ten thirty one, but yeah. Okay. So whatever else, it's eight million bucks. You know, you sell that, and let's say you know you you take home what's that six and a half, give or take, and you. Put that six and a half million dollars with y'all's platform is the same return? Or are you going to get a same similar return investing through y'all's platform as you would if you kept that farmland and you had an operator that was leasing that land from you or operating it and distributing you know the share of the crops, et cetera?
1: Sure. So first thing I would say is I need to correct myself. Five thousand acres in the delta is probably somewhere between let's call it uh, twenty and thirty million. Okay. So It's a lot. I think the advantage that we provide someone like that is diversification. So they can not just own a bunch of land in the Mississippi Delta. They can own some land in uh, Tunica County, Cahoma County. They can own land in Illinois, Iowa, maybe some in California. And for most of our investors, that's what they're interested in is, you know, even if they had $20 million to put on our platform, they wouldn't put it into one farm. They'd put it into you know, 20. And that allows them to have uh, more consistent returns that match the market rather than, you know, say in one year on that 5,000 acres, you have a really bad year. Well, they're going to have a really bad rent. Maybe they can't make their bank payment, or maybe they just have to adjust their lifestyle for that one year. And so our providing that diversification is a real asset to most of our
0: investors. Could you argue that what y'all are doing is the most advantageous next step to the farmer than some new innovation, you know, that's put on a seed to create a higher yield? Oh man,
1: that's a good question. I would say that I think that availability of capital is very powerful. And if you increase revenues, that enables you to increase your efficiencies. That is much more powerful than the incremental five bushels that you may grow on a farm. So do I think that it could be more powerful? Yes. Do I think it is in every case? Hard to say.
0: But what you're saying is you're already backing people that are good at what they do and they know how to create a return and by giving them more capital, you're making more of an impact and versus just marginal improvements on certain things.
1: That's exactly right. Growing a business is always more powerful than just incremental improvement. Uh, you can only cut so much, but if you can grow a business, and obviously you have to grow it well, right? I mean, Kat was talking about that on in her business. Like there are times when growth doesn't make sense, but in many cases, growth can solve a lot of problems.
0: Yeah, but, but then y'all offer kind of that due diligence and that back end support to know what's going on so it's just, it doesn't go off a cliff when it's scaling or whatever.
1: Yeah, so what I would say is for farmers, we're always thinking about how do we buy this well so that we can give them a good long-term rent? So there are two factors there that really matter for them. Number one, Can they have that acreage for more than one year? Can they make business plans over a reasonably long term around that acreage? And if they can, they can start to make decisions differently. I would say the other thing is, is the rent reasonable? Does it match current market expectations? And if that's the case, then, you know, they're not that different than any other acre that they're farming. We want to make sure that we're not trying to overcharge to make up returns for our investors. And then, you know, you talked about diligence for our investors. One of the things we do well is we make sure that we understand how prices are moving. What's a really great quality asset. How do we make sure there is water in an area? So, I mean, we talk about basically financial profile, water and soil. So financial profile is your returns, right? But water and soil are the things that inherently allow that return. And so we're always looking in to make sure those farms are really great so that our farmers can stay on there a long time. They don't have too much volatility in their yields year to year or their returns. And that makes them good consistent tenants for the investors in that property.
0: Yeah, I found this statistic when we were talking, I had it written out, but, and I don't, I mean, I would have to get this checked, but that we lose three acres of farmland per minute. Yeah, that's right. So the whole point of this was not to promote investing in your company, even though that would be great for anybody that listens. (laughs) But it's just very clear where we're at in this point in the conversation. You have a decrease of people going into it, farming. You have a decrease of amount of farmland, and you have an increased dependency on crop production inside of our country. And even though our world is globalized, COVID-19 taught us what happens when you're too reliant on importing things. And so y'all are at the forefront of providing a lot of capital to farmers that have that are elbow deep in this work right now, that love it and that love the grind of it. And you're giving them what they need, you know, while helping them not over leverage themselves and then also finding other ways to identify things to add value to their operation. So it sounds like y'all have a lot of optimism on what may be ahead for the next 20 to 30 or however many years. Yeah, I think we're extremely optimistic. One point I would tell you though is, you know,
1: farm labor is decreasing, the number of farmers is decreasing, but it's not decreasing as fast as our productivity is increasing. So to give you an idea about that, vacancy rates, meaning the you know, acres that go unfarmed is close to zero Almost every single farm gets farmed every single year. There, there are always people out there willing to go in and grow uh, grow crops because ultimately, if you have the equipment and you have the people, in most cases, a few more acres is not going to affect you in, in a negative way. You just get to spread those costs over more acres, and hopefully that is going to increase your profitability. How did this start? How'd your company start? Yeah. So it's a great question. Our, our CEO Carter Malloy was living in San Francisco and working for this hedge fund and he was investing in farmland kind of in, in the background with his, with his family, with his dad, someone on his own. And he was able to do that because he'd grown up around these farming areas and, and knew where the properties were and knew how to manage them. And he had done fairly well. And then he had, one of his buddies who you know was out there and wanted to invest some some money in farmland. And he said, well, hey, Carter, how do you do this? And Carter's response was, oh, oh this will be easy. Let's just pull it up online and I'll show you how to do it. And once he pulled it up, he realized there was no easy way to do it. They would have to figure out what good land was, figure out where to go, meet a broker they'd never met, buy it, manage the transaction, which any re- real estate transaction can be fairly complicated. And then once they, b- they bought it, you know, they'd be like trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I run this small business that I've just invested in this asset that I've invested in? How do I negotiate with the farmer? How do I make sure I am doing, giving him or her a reasonable rent? You know, it, it's a pretty complicated thing. Uh, well, it's a pretty straightforward thing, but it's a pretty complicated thing if you don't know where to start. And so that got him thinking and said, well, I need to make this easier because there are opportunities out there for both investors and farmers.
0: So that's how it started. And he had experience raising money. And then he, I think your seed round was what, 5 million or something? Yeah. Something to that effect. And
1: then uh, we've recently had another one since then.
0: Yeah. Series A. But how long after did he find you? Let's see. So he started the company in
1: spring of 18 and I started November 1st of 18. So it was pretty soon thereafter. He had been evaluating it, trying to figure out how to do it. And he's a, you know, a finance guy who's, who's got some farm experience. I'm a farm guy who's got some finance experience. So it kind of made sense for both of us. And honestly, it's been a, a fantastic partnership. And, uh, you know, he's one of my, Really good friends, and it's pretty fun to go to work every day with one of your good friends and and build something and surround yourself with incredible people. How did he find you? Uh, we have a mutual friend, one of my one of my best friends, uh, who works up in Little Rock, introduced us, and they they had worked some together. And uh, my buddy just said, "Hey, if you're thinking about something starting something in farming, you should give Garrett a call."
0: And so he had already committed to it. He had already said, "I'm going to do this." And then y'all got linked up and then you know raised money and and obviously you're now where you're at now you're saying you are hiring a new person every week and y'all just did your first series a round uh or your only series a round i guess Uh, (laughs)
1: and
0: and that's been within the last three years yeah
1: that's exactly right so he had uh you know like most uh well like many good entrepreneurs he was evaluating a lot of things while he still had a job. That makes, that makes the pressure a little bit easy, right? And then he decided to go all in and that was about the time we met. And so it worked out really well for both of
0: us. And what's the reason that these either family offices or insurance companies or REITs or whatever the specific terminology is of people that buy up a lot of farmland institutional money... Would they just buy up the land and then they would just do a lease agreement to the farmer themselves? But they were a lot more hands off and they were not partnering with the farmer. Thomas put the operator in place. What's the distinction or what's the difference?
1: So a lot of those gr- groups are also great partners, Sam. Like uh, we we are not the uh, we're not the only solution out there by any means. For farmers, our, our big distinguishing characteristic is that we move very fast. Uh, we have expertise and know what we're doing. And then the other thing is we're always buying. So you know, one of those funds may buy, you know, a handful of deals a year, and we're buying one every week. And so that just allows us the velocity of our deal flow allows us to take advantage of more opportunities. And so that gives us an advantage for
0: a lot of different farmers. What's been the hardest thing that you've had to accept and deal with over the last three to four years?
1: The hardest thing we do on a day-to-day basis is maintain quality. So maintaining quality of farms, making sure our quality of education and the resources that we provide our investors are excellent and continuing to have a really high quality of employee You know, it takes discipline to maintain quality because sometimes there's an urgency that seems to outweigh almost anything, but you have to have the discipline to say, no, we need the best. And in many cases, we've almost made decisions that would not have met that bar. And every single time we say no, and then something comes along that is transformative. It just reinforces that idea that you have to commit to being the best and maintaining a really, really high bar.
0: Have there been moments where you thought you might not make it?
1: I think there are moments in anyone's career when you think that we have been more fortunate than most to have really incredible timing and really incredible product market fit. You know, as I said before, some of that is luck, but we also have worked really, really, really hard. And there are definitely periods where I've thought about it and was concerned. But it's amazing when you buckle down, how much you can push through.
0: And it sounds that y'all been well capitalized to some degree.
1: We have, and we've, you know, uh, we're in a different position now. But early on, we had to make sure we were minding that well. And you know, not that we don't mind it well now. We definitely do, but we have a responsibility to our investors to continue to grow our business, and uh, and that's our investors in our business as well as in the farms that we have. We have more and more people who want to invest in farmland, and we've got to continue to provide them opportunities, and we've got to continue to provide opportunities for other farmers. And you know, one of the things that I try to talk about, and we talked about a little bit earlier, was. How, thinking about how you build an ecosystem around a business. Our business is interesting if, if we keep doing everything ourselves, it is transformative. If we can help a lot of other people make money through our business, because every single farmer who does a deal with us and expands his operation, if, if they can come back again and again and again, they're invested in our success same for investors same for brokers we work with same for uh, you know anyone involved in our business we want to help them do well because ultimately that helps us do well
0: was there a moment where you felt like you got to that point where you're like all right i'm not, i'm not going to say we're going to make it forever but uh we got a shot uh, like we're we're here at this checkpoint whatever that was it was there a distinct memory for that yeah i
1: think um in early on it took uh, a while to subscribe farms and that's just because we were getting started. Not that many people knew about us. And when the pandemic first happened, we really buckled down and did a lot of investor education. And we did a lot of work on finding the right farms and the right partners. And soon thereafter farms started going faster and faster. And first it was a week and then, and then it was you know, a couple days and then, Eventually we started doing, you know, subscribing a farm in a day. And like so many things, success has bred success. And we've had more opportunities because people say, well, dang, I wondered about y'all, but now I see how y'all work and I, I wanna go again. Let's find a way to work together. And when those dominoes started falling, it felt incredible, man. I mean, you just, you feel really blessed to have the opportunity and to get continue to get to serve these people and and you know going to work every day and building something
0: so it took you about two years to gain traction
1: to get the type of traction we have right now yeah i mean we we were doing stuff uh we launched the first farm in spring of 19 uh, and then you know we're slowly going along filling stuff up here and there but nowhere near to the velocity we have today could you work this hard if you didn't love farming the way you do I think there are a lot of things that help me love this farming is absolutely one. Uh, getting to learn new stuff every day is absolutely one. And you know, like I, I hope it doesn't sound trite, but the people are another thing. I'm just surrounded by some of the most intelligent people that I've ever been surrounded by. And they're constantly just amazing me with the different things they're working on and providing opportunities to all those people is, uh, and and being involved in the industry, I love. I think those are all things that help me work this hard.
0: But it sounds like it's a perfect storm, so to speak. <laughs> Dude,
1: it is a perfect storm. You know, like there's a quote of somebody talking about uh, it's really hard to be good at one thing. If you can be good at two things or three things, and find something at the intersection of those, you can be you can be really unique in the world, and maybe be best of class. I think that's true of happiness too. You wanna to find as many characteristics that make you happy as you possibly can. And I think that helps drive
0: you. From a tax standpoint, what does the future of farmland look like with the new president and increase of capital gains tax and stuff like that? How does that affect y'all's work?
1: You know, I'm, I'm certainly not a tax professional, but it sounds like there's gonna be a lot of farmland that gets sold soon. Because if people know they're going to sell... Because they, they want to get it done. They want to get it done, yeah. But, you know, I, I don't think it's going to keep people from transacting in land. You know, it may have short-term effects, but people are interested in farmland for a lot of different reasons. Diversification, you know, the, the dual aspects of what has been historical appreciation as well as the dividend that it spits out every year. And then... You know, people have all kinds of reasons to sell. Maybe they're buying a different farm. Maybe, you know, maybe they just want a little cash for their retirement. Maybe they're relocating to a different region. I mean, any number of reasons that you would sell a farm are the same as you would sell a house. So I I don't think people are going to fundamentally change how much they buy and sell land.
0: So if it goes to, or maybe the people that want to sell and just, if their net worth is tied up in the farm, They'll go ahead and do that, but people that are probably investing with y'all are in it from the long-term standpoint, from a diversification standpoint, so it it, pro- it may not phase them as much, is that true? Yeah, that's exactly right. Can you roll over farmland, like you can, opportunity zones or other types of real estate deals? You can, we we do not have that on our platform yet. Gotcha, but it's out there, but it's it's something. Yeah, 1031 exchanges are a big deal in the world of farmland. When you think about where you all are at now, what are the opportunities that you see? Or what are the things that, what are the most common pain points within the industry that you haven't tackled thus far? When you think out on a horizon after just doing a big, you know, nice Series A round, adding nice liquidity, all those things, hiring a bunch of people, increasing the skill sets of the people within the, within the company, having more credibility out in the marketplace, what are the things on the horizon that y'all are really kind of locked in on wanting to tackle?
1: Man, it's pretty simple. More opportunities for the people we work with while maintaining the quality of folks and opportunities that we work for.
0: So it's really only about farmland acquisition. It doesn't really get much into other types of technology or innovation within efficiencies or anything like that. You
1: know, I think we we have some technology stuff we're working on. We always want to be able to provide transparency and education to our investors and anywhere that we can do that we we want to but you know i think that's all kind of part of the same mission how do you how do you bring more people into this industry and provide opportunities for them while still having liquidity and transparency
0: from a crop standpoint and what we see at whole foods Kroger, sprouts wherever else are there things that change i've never noticed or thought about it much over the last 10 years since I bought groceries. But is it staying pretty consistent from what's produced, what's consumed, the ratios of it, et cetera, or or is there much new change or fluctuation in what that looks like from what we get as a consumer?
1: As a percentage of the market, much of it has stayed the same. You're looking at something like 80% of U.S. acres are corn, soybeans, and wheat. In the margins, you may have some change, you know, people growing kale or rutabaga or whatever it may be. But the vast majority of us acres are those big crops. And then other row crops, you know, come in after that rice, cotton, that kind of thing. And then you also have, you know, that's by acreage. But when you look at what's interesting is when you look at revenues, a lot of what drives revenues are the the orchard crops and the vineyard crops. California is one of the largest, uh, one of the largest, you know, revenue producing states in the country because they have so many high value crops that are grown out there.
0: And I guess because as consumers, as people, you know, for the most part are so resistant to change that people get comfortable with what they buy, what they eat, etc. So the introduction of like new crops or something, the way that we see it, other types of products that we consume, that's just for all intents and purposes, for the the next 10 to 15 years, you could probably expect the same things as they are today. Is that right? I think
1: that's pretty right. But the nice thing about farmland and farming is that if there was some massive opportunity and change in landscape, ultimately you're buying land. That land can grow a lot of different things. And so there's opportunity to change your practices uh, if you're a farmer. You know, if we decide that, you know, uh, pumpkins are suddenly some source of massive energy, you know, production, which obviously is kind of unlikely. Uh, we could switch a lot of acres into pumpkins. That's the great thing about land and about farming is ultimately you have resources that help you grow things that feed the world or feed fuel and clothe the world.
0: Yeah. And so what And what you're saying, what y'all are trying to get come get back to is if there's a market total of $3 trillion, is that of farmland in the country right now? Three trillion? That's correct. And there's only 10 billion of that that's invested. You see this huge runway of opportunity. And so it's almost too soon to think about anything else. And the thing that's most important to y'all is providing a great experience for the farmers that you're with, helping them ease their pain and their burden of their day-to-day work come alongside them, offer value wherever you can, you know, repeat myself a little bit, take down the barriers that causes them, prevents them from growing and and making more income for their families, but essentially trying to fund and acquire as many of that delta between that 3 trillion as you can. And that's really the only thing that you're focused on right now. So first, first thing I'll say is, You had the three trillion, right?
1: I probably was a little confusing earlier, is tens of billions. So let's say somewhere between 30 and 50 billion institutionally invested. There's a lot of runway and a lot of growth potential there. I think there are other things that we would and could look into. We have people asking for other countries. A lot of people invest in South or Central America. People invest in Australia for farming. Uh, there are other things like you know timber investment that are open to us. you know we're just trying to take it a day at a time. We think that there's a really incredible opportunity in farmland, and right now that's where we're really focused yeah and u s
0: farmland I hear you from a covid standpoint i didn't ask this earlier. What did you see from an import export that was helpful, if it was helpful, to help you all think through? maybe things you hadn't thought of prior. So man, I'm honestly, I'm not a, am uh, not an economist.
1: I, I don't pretend to have a massive understanding and a nuanced understanding of commodities. Uh, thankfully, trading commodities is really hard. What I can tell you from, from COVID is people have wanted to diversify their assets. And so there's a lot of interest in alternatives because they think, man, the stock market doesn't seem to make sense right now. And so we had a flood of investors coming in. And from what I've heard, I think that's been true across the industry. I think that has provided more opportunities for people in general.
0: And investors see the value of the US supply chain in this space and potentially if inflation happens or anything like that and they feel it's an attractive space. And now you have this infrastructure built to take on as much capital as there is. And you have the demand from the farmer side too, and it's a win-win for them. So you're able to really ramp it up quickly. That's exactly right. Are there any stories you can think of that maybe you've heard from a farmer that has been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years? Have they shared or said anything just about the value of what happens if they're actually able to start experiencing creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship that comes alongside and helps them reap even more of a harvest of their work, literally and figuratively, but then also to just kind of add value to themselves, their family. Is there anything that sticks out to you?
1: Yeah, man, I've actually got, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to take your question and split it in two. I'm going to give you a farmer and an investor story. So farmer story is exactly what you're talking about. It's this guy who's uh, been farming for a really long time. He has taken investment into his business before. and It's been a slog and we started working with him. Actually, he's one of the people we started working with right after COVID started and he's just an incredible guy. He's like the guy that, you know, hits your, your business grandfather. Cause he's just like so smart. So incredibly nice and so incredibly trustworthy. That doesn't stop us from doing all the diligence we need to do because, you know, it's business and he understands that. And we had a great relationship throughout the whole diligence period. But then we went on to raise a tranche of capital for him. And he was absolutely blown away at number one, how we were able to execute on that. And number two, how many people were interested in him and his operation and I, I, you know, it was really exciting to work with him. We worked with him several times since. And then on the investor side, one of the coolest stories I have is there's a, a guy who called in and he uh, he's a citizen of the US but had moved here from a different country. And he was a, he was a doctor. His family had traditionally been farmers and he invested in this farm and he kind of got emotional about it, man. He was like, look, I left something at home, and I felt like I was forsaking my history and my family, and now you've given that back to me.
0: And like, that kind of story is just incredible. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know, of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, then go to drivenbypodcast.com and send me a message. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show. And you can follow me on social on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.